0: This is RJ Rushdoony, Easy Chair number 387, May 28, 1997. I realized as I gave the number 387 for the Easy Chair that we have been doing this for 16 years or more now. In that time, we've covered a great deal of territory, but there's a great deal more to be covered. Tonight, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, Mark Rushdooney, and I will be trying to answer questions submitted by the Reverend uh, Byron Snap. I'm going to start off with a first part of the first part question I had written in the April Calcedon report random notes number 67 about uh, culture and child-rearing because at one time I had hoped to do a book on the subject and actually was collecting material on it well I have had experience with diverse cultures. My hometown, Kingsburg, California, when I was a child and a young man, was a community of uh, mainly foreign-born adults. I knew of one family that... uh Was of old American stock. It was fairly newly settled area, farmland, and the cultures there were transmitted from the old country Swedish, Danish, Norwegian, Portuguese, Armenian, and a smattering of a few others. And I have worked among the Chinese and Indians in particular. So I'll deal with that first part because I think it's uh, better not to try to cover too much ground but take each portion of Byron Snap's question uh, individually. Well, I'll start with the Indians. The thing to remember about the American Indians is that uh, the culture of the Intermountain Indians was one very different from that of the Southwest Indians, uh, such as the Navajos and the Pimas and some of the others. The Indians of the Shoshone and Paiute and other related tribes were wanderers and food gatherers. Periodically, the whole tribe would come together at a particular point. But if you're going to live off the land, you cannot uh, travel in great numbers. Because there's only so much food. As a result, the Indians, Paiute and Shoshone both, were food gatherers. They went around in small bands of from 15 to 25 or 30, uh, hunting small game and big game foods, berries, uh, pine nuts, anything and everything that they could gather. Now, this meant that except on a few occasions the children had no contact with any other group and when they did it was of their own kind. There was no pattern of deviation in a small group of 15 to 25 people, which meant it was almost like an extended family. The children had no rival pattern of behavior. They behaved because there was no alternate lifestyle for them. As a result, once the uh, Indians saw another culture, the white man's, it was devastating. They did not have any discipline or restraint. If you are wandering around and the duty of all, from toddlers on up to grandparents, is food gathering. That's your life. That's what you do morning, noon, and night. Now just imagine what it would be like if 15 to 25 of us, grandparents, parents, and children, were out here in the wilderness. Our area is still very sparsely inhabited and there is probably more game now than there was at that time. And yet, it would be a very difficult life for us even if we became very capable in food gathering. This meant there was no problem with the children. There was very little for them to do except work. In the evening, the grandparents would tell them stories to educate them in the way to live. And they would say, when I was young, this is what we did, and so on and so forth. I recall one old man describing what had happened when he had been taught by his grandfather what to do. And an enemy band which was transgressing on their food territory, attacked them. He immediately scurried to the nearest animal hole and before they'd camped, the children were taught to look for places like that, crawled in, pulled in leaves over his head, stayed all night, and in the next morning, with its light, he crawled out, found everyone in his little band dead except his father who was dying and his father told him you've been taught by your grandfather what to do now leave me and go that boy wandered all over the area managing to keep alive he was about five When he approached some uh, Indian encampment, he always made sure that uh, the wind was blowing away from the camp on the side where he approached. And he did this two or three times until he found a camp where they spoke Shoshone. And then he went and joined them. Now, in such a culture, the opportunities for delinquency are not there because there are no rival kind of uh, behaviors uh, available. There's just one way of life. Well, when the white man came and the white man's towns were established here and there, Old and young became delinquent. They were an undisciplined people. They were hardworking, they were courageous, they were very capable at survival in the kind of world they lived in. But there was no discipline except the discipline of the circumstances. As a result, old and young very quickly became alcoholic. And their alcoholism was of a far-reaching kind. I recall vividly when one fourth grader was picked up drunk and taken before the Indian court and rebuked by the woman judge for his behavior and for his drinking. And he was astonished. He said, but I've been drinking all my life. And it was probably close to the truth. Let me add something. That boy was a handsome, blonde, blue-eyed youngster He looked like he was a Scandinavian. But you see, culturally, he was an Indian. His behavior was Indian. And so, quite logically, having nothing but an Indian culture to grow up in, his reactions were Indian. His lack of self-discipline was again... Indian. I want to stop there, if you have any questions about this.
1: Rush, what would you uh, delineate were the both good points and bad points of Indian child-rearing? Well,
0: they were very kindly towards each other. The parents to the children, you mean, or her? And the children to one another. To the point of making uh, play impossible. They did not want to disappoint anybody. It was a culture where, because life had been me- meager, there was no restraint on uh, gratifying a child's wishes, uh-huh. if you could do so. Thus... I recall baseball games on the school playground, which was next to the mission, where a seven year old would want to play with teenagers and they would let him into a game. Well, it would quickly spoil the game because a six or seven year old boy is no, in no way prepared. Uh, to play ball with teenagers. But they wouldn't object. Hmm. I never heard an Indian baby cry in all the years I was there. Because if it wanted something, the mother or an older brother or sister or the father would instantly give them what they wanted. Hmm. If they showed the least sign of uh, being restless the mother immediately put them to her breast. So that an Indian child grew up without disappointments. And no discipline then, right? No discipline. Mm. So that when they faced the world of the white man, which was all around them, it created major problems for them. Hmm. They were not capable of meeting it. Any other questions or observations about the American Indians? This is why, to this day, uh, the Indians have a problem with alcoholism. There's a lack of discipline. There's also a constitutional uh, inability to take liquor. Some people's... It's a moral discipline... Uh, to abstain but some people can drink a lot without feeling it and I knew some Indians who could barely get a small swallow and they were severely affected it was almost as if it were an allergy well well The reservation where I was in recent years has been listed as the number one suicide area in the United States. Mm -hmm. Frustration is something the Indian cannot take. And since it was a very isolated reservation, it took a while for the world to come closer to it.
1: Was the religion sort of the typical Indian longhouse Religion or? It
0: was, uh, no, uh, it was more a belief in uh, medicine, healing. Mm-hmm. That's why, among American Indians, at least, the Western peoples I am familiar with... Uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the man who built the university in uh, Oklahoma the Pentecost. Oral Roberts. Oral Roberts. I am reasonably well informed at all times on what's going on in the world of religion, but before I ever heard of Oral Roberts, most of the Indians knew about him because of his healing ministry. And healing is at the heart Mm. of Indian religion. Mm. Well... Uh, Let's continue. Uh, The Chinese. Well, the Chinese have a totally different culture than the Indians, a very pragmatic one. Uh, One of the things that always interested me was that uh, both the chinese and the indians believed that when a person died in a house his spirit would haunt that uh, the house thereafter well the american indians uh the western ones would promptly burn the house down to drive the ghost away and build something else or and this drove uh oh the Roosevelt uh, housing uh, program directors, crazy. They'd see smoke rising somewhere on the reservation <laughs> and they knew there was another house with a loan on it going up in smoke <laughs> and they'd never collect because they believed that if the spirit was uh, were not properly taken care of before death, which meant that at the point of death you took wild rose uh, bush branches and laid them over the body to keep the spirit from crawling out and then the spirit would stay and be safely buried if uh, the person died during the night it was a disaster well the Chinese have a similar belief but They just move out of the house 30 days and it's their belief that the spirit of the departed will be discouraged at the end of that time and then they can move back in. Very practical. You don't burn down your house. There was a story told in my day in uh, San Francisco's Chinatown about... uh, a white woman who was uh, who had overly imbibed and was more than slightly drunk. she heard a commotion, sounds of an accident or something and she leaned out of her first story window to see what was happening and she lost her balance and fell feet first into the garbage can. just below her window and at that moment two elderly Chinese rounded the corner and saw that and shook their heads Americans very wasteful that woman good for ten years yet (laughs) well ancestor worship to the pagan Chinese was an important part of their faith and uh, This meant that religion was centered around the family. It gave a tremendous authority and discipline to the family. You did not disobey your parents. I've told this story some other year or two stories along this line about the authority of the Chinese family. When I was in Chinatown, this was in the 30s, this very fine Christian young man was interested in a particular kind of study which he could get best at the University of Chicago. And his father, proud of his son's achievements, put up the money at no small sacrifice so that the son could go to the University of Chicago. Well, when he came back at Christmas, everybody uh, in his age group was interested in hearing about uh, Chicago and the university there. And the young man told them about it. I know I was in on part of the conversations. Within days, the... uh, heads of some of the Tongs or family associations called on Mr. Fong's uh, family association and said uh, don't you think it would be better for Mr. Fong's son to come and go to school here and not create a bad example for other children. Uh, They family association told Mr. Fong and before the weekend was over the son was back that was the way things were then uh, to give another illustration of this the authority of the parents was such that In this one family of uh, two sons and a daughter, the son, I think, had a graduate degree in chemistry, I believe it was, and worked with an important corporation and drew a very fine salary. The sister had a job with another corporation. Both were college graduates and the uh, older boy had uh, an advanced degree. The youngest was a college student. And yet, the youngest told me one night, uh, I forget what event it was the previous night, he said he lost track of the time, and he got there too late, and he slept in the doorway. and uh, his older brother whose money was several times the income of his father, a janitor had also done that. He had come home one night exactly one minute after twelve. As he reached the door he could hear the clock hit the last ding of the ten but he crawled up in the doorway pulled his coat around him and slept there even though he could hear his parents listening to the news on the Chinese radio station he would not have dared uh, knock and that was the authority that existed well well This is the authority they have been working to maintain. They've had problems. I know I was called in once uh, by a group that was going to start a uh, Christian school because they felt the whole influence of uh, the public schools was bad. And uh, I had very few contacts because I did not want to maintain them. But what I found was that periodically there were disturbing elements that came in. Young people no one knew were not local. Apparently were from mainland China, Marxists who had been smuggled in to be a disruptive force. And you may recall, Douglas, there were some violent murders, public murders, in Chinatown at that time, which uh, had no eyewitnesses. Well, the Chinese community had more than a few shocks like that but they pulled together to maintain their old culture and keep the young people in line. With the Christians, it was a different type of discipline, of course, in the Chinese family. Any comments about, or questions about any of this?
2: The Chinese seem... I've always seemed to me somewhat ambivalent about religion. They can either take it or leave it or indulge in more than one religion at a
0: time. Oh, yes. Uh,
2: <clears throat> did you observe this uh, in Chinatown?
0: Yes. They can be Buddhist, Taoist, uh, Confucian, which isn't strictly a religion, but is close to it. They can be in Christianity for a time in order to get what they can out of it because basic to the ancient Chinese perspective is that there is no absolute truth. All things are relative, whether it's the old yang and yin kind of thinking or a more Buddhist one. No absolutes. You do what is fitting at the right time. Well, this is uh, a hard thing for a culture to overcome because its roots go back at least to the time of Christ, if not earlier. It was only in the 1300s, I believe, that this type of relativistic thinking hit China, uh, Japan. So, Japan, while it has strains of this, is not as deeply imbued with it. But uh, it remains to be seen how much Marxism has destroyed this. Because Marxism, while philosophically is relativistic, uh, politically and socially it takes uh, rather totalitarian a monolithic and absolutist position
2: well they, uh, they my i grew up in San francisco so had and spent quite a bit of time either working in, in Chinatown or visiting with people that I knew there and I witnessed uh, many of the demonstrations by young communists in uh, St. Mary's Square in Chinatown and while this is all going on there are people in their 80s doing Tai Chi exercises Mm -hmm. and they seem to be very tolerant. There's no counter demonstrations.
3: Mark, did you have a question? Yes, you had mentioned the uh, yin-yang philosophy of uh, the Chinese. The yin-yang symbol appears a great deal uh, anymore. Uh, I see it on T-shirts. It's on uh, jewelry. Surfers have kind of taken it as a common symbol amongst their subculture. There was a restaurant... uh, Near the entrance to uh, uh, Southern California amusement park, that could be this large symbol clearly visible from uh, the freeway. Uh, it, it's become a very symbol, a very common symbol, and um, a lot of people, especially young people, are under the impression that it's very harmless. I've heard some say it just means male and female, uh, and um, uh, c- could you go into what yin-yang represents? It has,
0: yes. It has um, a variety of uh, meanings. It does refer to male and female, uh, to aggressive and submissive. And what it basically uh, sets forth is the relativity of all things. Uh, in terms of this, there are times when you advance than times when you retreat. Uh, There is no hard and fast truth. You do that which is fitting for the time. So it teaches a radical relativism and you have no truth. During the uh, 20s, I recall vividly the warlords of China, each of whom controlled a vast area equal to many, many major nations, and how they periodically would uh, switch allegiance or religion. One uh, general, Feng, F-E-N-G, was for a long time apparently a very dedicated Christian. And then just as quietly he dropped it. Now, many Americans felt that hypocrisy was a major characteristic of the Chinese. There was a term then very popular known as a description of too many of the ostensible Christians of China, rice Christians. Christians, as long as they were getting rice. That was not fair. They truly believed that uh, certain things were fitting at certain times. If you do not believe in absolute truth, you may find psychologically uh, Christianity is very important at one stage and then you outgrow it at another. As a result, a hard and fast truth was very alien to Chinese culture. Well, it was, uh, I believe... Eugen rosenstock QC, who described uh, John Dewey's pragmatism as the Chinification of the United States, because pragmatism and the yin-yang philosophy are identical as far as their basic premises are concerned. There is no truth. Everything is instrumental, useful at a particular time, but not at another So, with our progressive education, now in the schools since the 20s, our school children really have imbibed a Chinese morality or faith. There is no absolute truth for them, and now this is open and apparent in our public schools in the values clarification courses where the child is taught to choose his
1: own values
0: nothing is absolutely valid for all
1: Rush I've noticed in reading Chinese books and seeing Chinese films there's almost invariably a note of despair um, very cyclical view of history no view of hope um, almost a determinism not necessarily philosophical determinism but a very practical life Mm -hmm. uh, and that would seem to go along with the pragmatic approach that uh, there's really nothing to hope for and It'll take a lot to shake that out of China.
0: Well, uh, the next part of Byron Snap's question is the impact of Calvinistic theology on child-rearing in America. That's a very important question. We must remember that while Calvinism was strong in some parts of Germany, in Switzerland, and in some parts of France and England, it came into its own in colonial America. And the uh, catechism used in New England, which began in Adam's fall, we sinned it all, which every child was to learn, was thoroughly Calvinistic. The Puritans, as Edmund Morgan has pointed out, loved their children with an intensity that few people can appreciate. They knew they were prone to being partial to their children, so they were particularly careful to discipline them properly. When the children reached well, they would uh, swap children with a friend and the child would become a servant in the other family's home so that he could be disciplined in a way that his parents might not have been able to do successfully. The Calvinistic culture created an emphasis on On the fact that the child is born a sinner. That the child will be self-centered. And that it is up to the parents to teach the child the priority of God and then the priority of other people to himself. And they were very rigorous about such teaching. So that Calvinistic theology had a powerful influence. What we have seen in the past thirty years is a very, very savage reaction against Calvinism in child rearing, so that the child today is reared uh, spoiled rotten. He is indulged. He is given what he or she wants. And the result is we have what back in the 50s they spotted as coming, the child-centered culture. Of course, now we have, in a sense, departed from that, except that in law, we are a child-centered culture and the child takes priority over the parents. Well, the government considers
2: today, considers all children virtually wards of the state. Yes.
1: Another point I don't think that we should neglect, Rush, is uh, the intensity with which the Calvinists in America and elsewhere always held the view of the covenant, the centrality of the covenant, uh, which included the idea of the intergenerational faithfulness of the people of God, that the children were in covenant with God, just as the Christian parents were. Of course, among evangelicals and Arminians, that whole idea really is lost. Um, They want the little children to grow up to have adult conversion experiences and treat the little children like pagans, which is why they don't mind many of them going to public schools. But I think we need to get back to the colonial Calvinistic approach When you mentioned the book by Edmund Morgan Rush, I wrote down a sentence of his that he quotes in that book that really stuck with me. I think it was in the chapter on Puritan tribalism and the Puritan family. He quoted one of the old Puritans, and they're eminently quotable as saying, God casts the lines of election in the loins of godly parents. Mm -hmm. That's a very powerful, pregnant uh, statement and um, I think we need to remember that that the Calvinistic approach is not first of all to bring proselytes into the church although certainly we should do that but it's first of all to um, evangelize and uh, catechize our own children and bring them up in the faith and one reason that Christianity today is uh, is so effete is because we've really lost that I mean the, the second generation tends to go away from the truth because there's no doctrine of the covenant and of course our forefathers had that doctrine and that's why they're faith was so virile and strong.
0: Well, to go on with these questions now, here is a very interesting one. Has there been a different approach to child rearing with the growing acceptance of Armenian theology and the innocence of the child? Very, very definitely. Now, at this point, uh, I'd like to... Uh, Say that about the same time Arminianism and Arminian revivalism emerged and then shortly after the shift in the view of the child and the rise of feminism. Well, just think a moment what the feminists and the child advocates were saying there the 1830s and 40s. They were talking about the innocence of the child. They were talking about the suppression of the innocent and wonderful female sex. And by whom? By the nasty, wicked males. So, What happened was that men were demonized, women made innocent, and the feminists went so far as to refer to God as she. So the first attempt at a gender revolution took place a century and a half ago. Well, naturally, uh, the children were innocent. There was a great deal of reaction to that. Men were then a bit more masculine and absolutely would not put up with this. And so uh, the child-centered society was a while in coming. And Armenian uh, concepts of child-rearing did not gain advocacy uh, to too great an extent until well into this century.
1: You were talking about that rush and that reminded me again of that book that you recommended that I read some years ago and that I did, Ann Douglas's The Feminization yes, of, of American Culture. Of American culture um, which demonstrates that feminism came in with the erosion of Calvinism yes. early last century. It's a very powerful work. <coughs> Russ, uh, would, yes, would go you ahead. comment on one thing? I, I, I've heard you mention this a couple of times and just it was sort of teased by it. This idea, maybe earlier this century, of the, uh, of the Christian mother with the wayfaring son and how this oh, really... Oh, yes, Discuss yes. that for, for a while because I, I've heard this a number of times. And, uh, well, up until
0: the Great Depression, in evangelical circles... One of the most uh, popular solos, it was a solo number usually always sung by uh, women. Uh, Oh, where is my wandering boy? My heart overflows, for I love him, he knows. Oh, where is my wandering boy? And uh, the idea of a lantern in the window, to welcome the boy home at any hour of the day or night. That kind of thinking was very, very prevalent. Uh, men did not like it, but uh, women uh, went overboard for it because they were very much sentimentalized to give you an indication of how this developed in its decline. In Dorothy's uh, childhood, uh, her parents knew a couple whose only child died, a boy. And the mother spent the rest of her life grieving, and that was regarded as something noble. And in fact, she became so sensitive to the whole thing, I believe they sold their house and bought one where she could look at the uh, cemetery where her boy was buried. And I think she ultimately had the child moved to another location, which would be a drier plot. And her husband put up with it, and he was a great big brawny railroader. This is the kind of uh, step taken downhill to the destruction of American manhood. Incredible sentimentality. Perhaps some of you can cite examples of the same thing. I don't
1: know. Well, our, our whole religion today, Rush, as you well know, has been so feminized and has entered the church so much it seems that people do not even... Uh, I'm not even aware of it. And I tell you where you really see it, and we won't take long on this, but the music today, you mentioned, is just so mm-hmm. man-centered and sentimental. And yes. I think you mentioned earlier, Rush, recently that um, most of the songs written today are written for women because the church basically is made up of women. Yes, uh, very definitely.
0: If you get a hymnal from the last century, it is... Uh, written in terms of male voices predominating. Now it's female voices and the men who are in the congregation have trouble with them very often because everything's too high for them so that the whole character of the church has been uh, warped. And today, of course, you have the Ordination of women elders and ordination of women pastors.
2: I think a great deal of this is the fault of men who drive their wives to church but don't go in. And this has been going on for the last two or three generations.
1: So they don't leave their families in the faith. Exactly. That's
2: right. I mean, they have no one else but themselves to blame for the That's feminization right. of the church. They've, they really have uh, uh, rejected their role.
1: Yes. And we attack the feminization of the church, and we should, but it's largely the fault of the men who have refused to assert themselves and take their biblical responsibilities seriously.
2: Yeah, you know, they want to run home and watch football and t- television. Right. And, you know, yeah. they can't escape from their responsibilities or escape from the world without paying a price.
1: Yes. Well... Joe Sixpack doesn't want to go to church these days for the most part because he says, oh, it's a woman's religion. And unfortunately, he's right. Mm -hmm. Most of it it is. Most of the time it is.
0: Well, Arminianism from the beginning has had a strong appeal to women. Calvinism has had a stronger appeal to men who are heads of households. Absolutely. Well, let's continue. Uh, what impact has the media and technology, computers, etc., had on child rearing, particularly allowing parental uh, supervision to be replaced by entertaining, computer games, etc.? Well, that's a question that uh, I'm glad to see there because it does trouble me uh there is an intense absorption in computers on the part of young people today. However, I've also read and I've been told by a computer expert that uh, after six months, a great many lose interest in computers. So that uh, there is hope, perhaps,
3: what do you think? I don't know if computer games are as popular today as they were ten years ago. I, I I students in my in my classes don't seem to talk about them. Ten years ago they were all the rage. They had Nintendo and other such systems that you hooked to your T V and and these were really pretty mindless games. Um I haven't heard as much about those in in, in, the le- in, in several years, so I'm no, not sure I if they're as right. popular. Um, what's getting more popular is the more sophisticated uses of the computers. On the World Wide Web and so forth. Which um, present pro- other problems yes. other than m- mindlessness um, and other dangers. But um, I think the computer game craze may
1: have uh, be on the decline. I may be wrong about that. I think one of the real problems is the transformation from a verbal-oriented culture to a, to a visual-oriented uh, culture, which Neil Postman dealt with in the book Amusing Ourselves to Death. Um, as long as the computer, as long as it's word processing and it's verbal-oriented, I don't think there's a problem, but so much of it today is visual-oriented that uh, children, as you well know, Rush, if children aren't really trained in the verbal character of life and experience, um, they really are missing a lot and can be easily misled. It's, it's hard to propagandize people who have a strong background in language, whereas if you can titillate their imagination with mm-hmm. with pictures, um, that's a that's I think that's a real problem.
2: Well, it's hypnotic. Television is hypnotic.
1: Yeah. Well, it's also a learn. It, it's a
3: method of learning that a lot of people don't know how to read learn by reading that's right and, and, good they, we, point. and they fight against it because all they think of is, is you know assignments from, yeah. from the sixth grade in their geography book and and they have real contempt for, for learning by the word. Mm. Well they' whether it was learning per se or not, they're accustomed to television and movies and they, they feel the need to see something
2: yeah, these interactive. These people, it it kills creativity virtually in the cradle. People who have no imagination have no creativity. Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, You know, uh, industry is crying in their beer because they can't hire people that can solve problems. Well, you can't solve problems without some intellect, without some creativity. You can't envision a solution to anything. Mm -hmm. So television Mm -hmm. has not done our culture. uh, a great deal of good from that yeah. standpoint as far as educating children. Uh, it's destroyed uh, family cohesiveness. Uh, people at the entire family, you know, mothers, fathers, and children would prefer to watch television rather than interact with each other. Mm-hmm. And the pace of our uh, civilization, if you can call it that, uh, is... Uh, so uh, rapid now that uh, parents just give up and they give their children to the advertisers and mm-hmm. give their children to the propagandists and give their children to the people with an agenda on television who have honed the art of uh, uh, brainwashing to a fine art. These people are experts. These people Mm -hmm. that advertise on the Saturday morning cartoons and so forth. They know how to capture the attention and hold it. Children, look at this mass hysteria that takes place every Christmas when these people, when whatever toy of the moment floats to the surface and people are literally physically fighting with each other at these stupid toy stores to buy this garbage and two weeks later it's in the trash. Now, how can that be? I mean, people with any brains at all, how can that be? It's because their kids have been brainwashed and the kids have this Mm -hmm. tremendous power over them Mm -hmm. to badger them until they go get this stupid toy.
1: Uh, Advertisers work very hard to generate Mm -hmm. just that response. Well, it's not going to change anytime soon. I mean, the government, uh, the Congress just passed a bill, was it a couple of months ago, saying that uh, every TV station by 2002 has to... I Have a digitized signal. I mean, uh, which means that you won't be getting your TV from the uh, waves in the air. It'll be uh, by means of electronics, like computers are today, to produce a brilliant picture. So parents are going to have to fight steadily this this trend of uh, you know visualization rather than verbalization.
2: Well, the, the, you know, the the thing boils down to what we're Russ was talking about earlier is the discipline. Has to be there. Mm -hmm. You have to monitor what your kids are watching. You have to, uh, discuss with them and give them some basis of comparison of what is intellectually uh, feeds them and what intellectually destroys them.
1: Uh, And another major problem is that the modern TV and all of this tends to create an artificial world that insulates them from the real, Mm -hmm. from reality. And so they can create a world, well, you know, the whole idea of cyberspace. Uh, and um, that sort of thing is... is. is so the fun? toy of the moment. Yeah.
0: Well, we'll continue our discussion on the next tape. I want to all of you who are listening and have questions to ask to be sure to send them in because they're a great help to us. We want these tapes to be helpful to you and we will... Answer any questions you ask if we are able. Thank you for listening and God bless you.